it's a synesthetic jam of regenerative ideas and co-creation, illuminating the path towards a future that works for 100% of life. I'm Amanda Joy Ravenhill, one of our co-hosts here. I'm with the Buckminster Fuller Institute, and I would love the guests to introduce themselves today. I'll pass it on to Tia. Hi, everybody. I'm Dr. Tia Kansara. I'm the director and founder of Replenish Earth, and I'm also a special advisor to the UNFCCC um, Resilience Frontiers Initiative, which is the initiative for foresight at the UN. I'm currently at COP26 in the Blue Zone, and we have a pavilion called the Resilience Lab, which you're all welcome to join. Wonderful. How do we find that? Mm. If you're in the blue zone, you can come into the pavilions area. There are um, three particular UNFCCC's own pavilions, so the UN's own pavilions inside where all the countries are represented. So, um, of course, it's different accreditation to the green zone, which is a public space. But if you were, you will find it shortly um, after. It's very close to the Global Innovation Hub. Fabulous. Welcome, Tia. And welcome our co-host, Jurgis, who has just entered the stage. Hello, hello. How are we doing? Do you hear me clear? We can hear you clear. I'm so happy to be here with you today. We had the, we had the evil, sinister spirits of anti-cop invade all our technical equipment and make things particularly difficult for us to get this broadcast off the ground. But ladies and gentlemen, if you hear the strumming of my guitar, if you hear my voice, you can be, you can rest assured and know that you are tuned into Re and Co Radio. For the next hour, we will be talking about re-evolution and co-activism. We will really be diving into what it means to be a person who wants to see change in the world, a human being who seeks to change the status quo. And as I mentioned previously, this transmission is initiated from COP itself. We are in Glasgow and we are listening to all these world leaders talk about climate change, activism, and all kinds of other things. We also have people from Extinction Rebellion on the sidelines making their noise. And uh, we have a really beautiful group of human beings with us today. Today on, uh, on the show, we have Tia Kansara from Replenish Earth. And we have Laura. And Laura's actually with me. Laura, how do we pronounce your last name correctly so I don't maul it one more time? Well, if you want to go with the full thing, it's Wasserson. Sometimes chopped down to Was for ease of use. Uh, any nicknames welcome. We have Laura Swasserson from the Buckminster Fuller Institute. We also have a good friend, Benjamin Von Wong, who's even using the amazing avatar on the Clubhouse app. Great. And we also have my dear friend, Lucien Ternovsky, with us today. And so, uh, as first question for the floor, for all of you, before we even start, good cop, bad cop. Uh, this is becoming a meme, almost that we have two cops. We have the cop of people who are really trying to seek change and are real and are tired of all the blah blah blah, as uh, as our good friend uh, Thurnberg put it. And then there's bad cop, which is um, 
I don't know. Why don't we start with Tia? Tia, you actually have access to the green, to the blue zone. Are you picking this up? Are you picking up this divide, or is it just us mm. who are on the sidelines? Mm. Of course, um, I have been watching it because I've been blessed in the actual conference itself, um, participating and observing all of the negotiations and launching an initiative specifically at the pavilion space. Um, so, of course, um, anything more on the media side of things, I haven't really been watching. Um, but yes, there are. There's a sort of a good, the bad, the ugly. On one side, you've got all of the initiatives that each country is representing, uh, putting the negotiation hats on, debating whether it's really that important. Um, and then you have sort of the power in the hands of those that um, are uh, somewhat the, the biggest um, the biggest polluters. So, um, you know, if India wants to turn around and say that we're not actually going to get anything sorted until when we decide, it's not as if there's any negotiating power that anybody else has. You know, we played a song about a week ago with Lucien. It's a beautiful line. It's like, some of us be dancing and some of us be danced. Some of us are asking and some of us don't want anything to be asked. It's very curious because I think it's a question of sovereignty as well, where there are complex systems where we play a pawn's role. And it's even curious because there's people who are very high up the food chain. Even if you take the financiers, for example, if we take the people who work the economic system, they are more philosophically and cognitively enslaved than most anybody else. They're forced to think of profit and economic performance above all else, as if it was religious dogma, uh, which puts us at odds, you know, the people who are dancing and the people who are danced. Um, we've also got a very good friend, uh, Benjamin Von Wong. And it's, it's actually curious because I know him so well from the sound of his voice, I have not met him yet personally but I know that he's a beautiful human being and from what I understand and gather correctly Ben your your type of activism is using art to change narratives and to change the relationship people have with the world around them is that correct is that a fair assessment <laughs> I suppose it's something that I try to do um, I think that art has the power to shift perspectives uh, or at least good art does. And that's what I try to do with the work that I create. All right. Well, we see that you've been, uh, you create beautiful photographic works of art and art installations. And right now you're mostly working with plastic. That's right. Is there a point where you feel that you're banging your head against a brick wall because you're making a point and people kind of understand and they see what's happening? but somehow feel that you're not, you're not getting through all the way. Tell us a little bit about that, because your journey's been a, a long and, and an arduous one, I'd say. Yeah, um, I mean, I think this is something that all activists may feel, uh, that because, I mean, the definition of being an activist is to be fighting against an existing system. And so for most of the life of an activist, you're losing the battle, right? You may have, like, wins along the way, but you're fighting against an entrenched power structure. So 
at some point you just feel like, well, I've, I've done all the things, I've said all the right things, I've created the movements, but why is change still not happening? Um, and I think there's definitely frustration there. Um, I wonder if perhaps one perspective that I've found helpful is to not think of change as binary, uh, not to think of it as winning or losing, but rather a constant sense of progress. How are we moving forward in the right direction? And so when you opened up the discussion talking about good cop, bad cop, um, it has me thinking that, you know, regardless, there's always going to be good actors and bad actors, but maybe something to be hopeful for is, is to realize that the center has shifted and continues to shift and is and is even accelerating in in, in a hopeful direction may and, and 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 for sure it's it's never where we want it to be um but this is true for all parties involved but at least we can be hopeful that change is happening in the right direction you know this is a great point you just brought up uh my dear friend because you kind of reach an existential question, whether this is just a power dynamics conundrum that has gone on for ages and ages, you know, and, and rather than fighting with weapons, we're fighting with ideas and, and visions and perspectives. Um, but let me ask if anybody in the room thinks that we're actually at a critical point where something has to change on a much deeper level. And if it's just, uh, you know, isms, a war of isms or, or I don't know, social, political, economic ideologies once against the other, or we're actually at, at a very crucial time for civilization. Does anybody, anybody want to contribute to that? First one who, who jumps in, <laughs> takes the floor. <laughs> oh no, I'm on this mic. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to move further away then. Yeah, <laughs> keep things. I'll take that from here. Um, yeah, so one of Buckminster Fuller's most famous quotes that I, I never tire of still is, you can't change things by fighting the existing reality to change something, build a new model that makes the existing model obsolete. And there's, there's a lot of nuance within that. And also, I think it's kind of incorrect in some ways because there is a role for resistance um, and fighting and illuminating just how many perverse incentives there are that are are keeping this this current status quo comfort you know convenient culture going that's species suicide and um, I think there is the need for some really big disruptions and also I find, you know, confidence and solace in Buckminster Fuller's obsession with the word procession and this idea that there's these, you know, side effects or, or second order effects uh, that actually become the main effect. So, you know, as we get together to protest what's happening with, you know, fossil fuel companies having more representatives than any other country uh, at the COP, we're also coming together and sharing ideas on a just transition and how we can use this $74 trillion business opportunity of solving climate change to get those hands, that money in the hands of the people who have been genocided and burdened by the extractive economy. So 
I think it's it's underway, and I also invite everyone to really step up their courage and their bravery and stand stand up, speak out, and really share the that deep unease that I think most of us feel when you can't actually even really hold, I find, just how fragile things are right now and how vulnerable so many ecosystems and so many species and, and us even humanity is right now um but it's so important that we voice that and make art around it and come together around it um so that we can make that transition that's that's required thank you i want to jump in thank you amanda i just i want to share something from a talk yesterday i witnessed of beautiful ecuadorian woman uh who's the founder of escuela de los corazones which is School of the Heart. She said, Hoy, no mañana. Today, not tomorrow. This moment is upon us now. It's not about changing tomorrow. It's the need, as Amanda so beautifully clarified for us, is today. So lovely. I met an indigenous woman from... uh, uh, Actually, they were from Ecuador, Bolivia, and Argentina. And they, they were very adamant that the representation we need uh, is female. And, and these were her exact words. She says, we bleed and connect with the world every month, with the earth every month. We are the ones that give life. We are the ones which actually understand what it is to, 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 to bear life. And we need more of this heart uh, coherence. Well, she didn't say heart coherence. She said more, more heart, more understanding, the burden and the beauty of life, and um, and it's it's really lovely to hear Amanda in a vulnerable place and opening up and really expressing uh, how her mind understands what happened, what's happening, but the heart is crying. And so I'd like to ask the room how we console this because I know as an activist I also sometimes feel broken emotionally and. Um, and I don't know if I find solace in the mind or if it's the mind that kind of tricks you to keep going on. Kind of like, I want to put that out there, see if anybody, how, how they relate these two elements and the heart which hurts and the mind that tries to make sense of things. I want to just take a moment also to acknowledge that indigenous communities and are are the first to experience the effects um, of climate change and also like socioeconomically disadvantaged communities and countries are are the first to experience the deadly effects of climate change and the least, the you know, the least to contribute to the causes of climate change. And I kind of wonder, like, within like Lucian, this really powerful example of hope that we, like, what is it going to take also for people to acknowledge that? Like, I I just wonder, like, the people in power, like, I don't think they've realized yet what's on the line I don't think they're like really understand the gravity of the situation because I, I, I 
truly believe that if they did, they would do something. But um, yeah, I think one of the things I've been hearing expressed consistently is that the indigenous voices need to be at the front of this conversation. They are protecting our earth, our waters, our land. Um, so I just wanted to acknowledge that here. Well, that's that's what we're hearing, right? We're hearing um, we're hearing that more indigenous voices need to be represented. Um, Tia, what do you feel? Do you think that they're sufficiently represented in this context of COP, or are they more like mascots, or are they more like a, just a entertainment? Or are they used more just for you know just for like beautiful decorative purposes? Mm, thanks for asking that question. We've actually been really, really lucky with representation this COP. And I think part of that is because of an invitation that we've extended to include them not only in um, you know, the peripheral activities, but actually the core activities that are happening, the negotiations that are happening, they're showcasing all of the impacts that they have on a local level, which I think has been received incredibly well. Um, you know, within all of the pavilions, we've had a number of healing sessions. We've had parades throughout the Congress, indoors as well as outdoors. I think we have representation like never before, just to reinforce that again. And I'd also like to add that much of the work that they've been doing, especially the Arawako tribe that I'm quite close to in the Sierra Nevada in Colombia, have really extended the work that they've been doing to bring attention to their lives. Um, many of them do that without anything in return. It's almost as if it's, um, as they say, the little brother is misbehaving and they want to share exactly how the forest responds to that. Yeah. That's an interesting point. And, and, and indeed, the indigenous people do feel that they have to um, educate us. Um, but how do you, do you feel that, for example, after these experiences uh, here, after their prayers and their dances, that some of that permeates to the backroom decisions being taken? Because we all know that an ayahuasca journey or a transcendental hike in the mountains can change a human being. But do you think that, that, that nature is actually being represented in this space right now? Um, sorry about the loud noise. Um, I would say that we are nature. Distinguish the distinguishing factor behind someone who is indigenous and someone who is um, in, a, in an urban environment um, is this link that we have through our DNA across a variety of, of communities, across a variety of nations and people who come from the global commons. So. Yeah, I find, I find that difficult to digest as a question because for me, when someone says that I'm not nature, it kind of feels a bit weird. That's, that's, a, very, that's a very fair point. That's a very fair point. Anybody else want to jump in on that? One question or thought. Hi. 
comes to mind is um, so nature being represented through people. Uh, I'm wondering if corporations can be treated as people. They can be sued. They can, um, you know, they have the, they're recognized as having the same rights as a person almost. Uh, how are we doing on the front of uh, giving nature itself some legal rights and representations? I remember visiting Bhutan, um, I think maybe four years ago, and uh, they had just implemented a law where anyone could uh, sue someone in a court of law on behalf of nature. And so an example of how that might happen is if a um, construction company building a road just uh, you know, started pushing a bunch of material down a hill and destroyed a bunch of trees in the process, then they would be liable for the damage that they, they had done. Um, and in order for nature to be represented, they, a person had to stand up and, and, and invoke that. And I thought that was such an interesting thing. Is that something that any of you have heard growing as a movement in the, in the last little while? I just met a group of people who sued Shell Corporation. It's a group from the Netherlands of primarily activists that hired lawyers. And they won. They won against Shell. And Shell has to reduce their emissions I believe in the Netherlands specifically by 40%. And they've actually released a handbook. Uh, they've open sourced uh, their process for how they were successful in suing Shell. I have the booklet. Um, unfortunately, I don't have the name on immediate recall at the moment of the group that succeeded, but I'm sure a quick Google search will be fruitful. Pretty impressive and exciting and definitely inspiring for how we can do this more, you know, more extensively. Just a quick question, but is justice the answer? And just putting it out there, if we need to really act really quickly, do we need trials and courts and, and, uh, and tri tribunals of public opinion to, for people to convince themselves that they're right or wrong? When at the end of the day, the only thing it will do is polarize, won't expand understanding. So is justice what we need at the moment? Or does anybody see another avenue which should be taken with a little bit more urgency? It's really fascinating. I find this a really challenging question again. On the one side, I feel that there is this trauma that has been experienced and acknowledging that and seeing that and honoring the, the, the harm that was done to, to kind of hurt these communities, hurt the planet, needs attention and it needs to be seen. Because without calling that out, it's actually quite difficult to confirm that it even happened. It's like ignoring it completely, like the Holocaust, complete ignorance about what actually happened for an entire generation of human community. Yeah. I totally agree. I think acknowledging and holding people responsible for their, like these corporations that have such extensive impact and have no responsibility, I think it is very crucial that they be held responsible personally. Let me make a little synthesis. Let us try to commit what we spoke into song And it's quite curious that yesterday Brian Eno was here Was here and he had a, a singer on stage I don't remember who it was But they were basically
We're communicating that you can communicate or you can tr transfer a lot more information through something that's laid in emotionally, something like a note, like a na -na -na, or a note that's well sung, or a poem that's well recited. And um, I'm kind of circling back to something that I wanted to touch upon at the beginning of the conversation, which has to do with our emotional need for change and our mental safeties. Uh, I really liked what you were saying, Lucien, at the very end, that, you know, all these complex systems, the IMF, you know, uh, monetary policy, all the things we have to consider. Imagine all the mental acro ac uh, acrobatics we have to go with something that is in tune with our heart. And so, again, I'm wondering, do we need a special kind of cognitive machete to cut through all that uh, intellectual red tape? Is it, uh, Benjamin, is it art that's going to help us, you know, bypass all those uh, obstructions, uh, mental obstructions we have? Is there something else? Uh, because I feel we need to connect with the heart much, much quicker. And again, that's not my message. That's the indigenous people saying, if you don't feel the world's pain right now, you know, um, then you're basically a psychopath. Well, I mean, when I hear you asking the question, it sounds like you're asking for a silver bullet solution. Um, and I'm not sure there is one. I think that there is a common enemy. The common enemy is apathy. And as long as we find a way to get involved, um, to, to, to stay curious, to learn, to grow, and to figure out how the skills that we have can be applied uh, to, say, to, to create a world that can serve all people and the planet, uh, then we're all in alignment. You know, as an example, you know, the, these things are all intersectional. So you asked earlier, you know, is justice what we need? Well, justice can also be seen as a, a storytelling tool, right? When you start establishing what's right and what's wrong and you help rewrite those narratives, uh, and, and, and those who, who deviate from what is a social norm, what we can redefine as a new social norm, then we can start pointing uh, more quickly towards um, the wrongs and, and hopefully put more wind behind the sails to create more innovation and, and, and even better narratives. And so, you know, I, I, I see all of this stuff as interconnected. And as long as we are able to sustain and maintain the energy to keep fighting and to not get the heart too exhausted or not get the mind too exhausted and to reinforce and support each other as we move forward and try to do better and never be satisfied then we're, we're on the right path so um progress over any kind of destination i think is the uh the name of the game to keep fighting Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's the idea of a protopia, right? Protopia over that of utopia. Um, every every sub, We're not going to figure it out this generation. We're not going to figure it out next generation. We're probably never going to figure it out because with every new set of solutions we come up with are going to come a new set of problems. Uh, I, I do agree that we're in a you know critical juncture, junction and very soon we may pass a point of no return. And, and so clearly the stakes are higher. Um, but every generation has had their share of challenges um, and they've somehow all made it through and here we are today. So there is cause for hope, right? There is cause for hope.
love these silences because I can almost hear all of you thinking on the other side of the call. Um, I'd like to leave a little space here just uh, not to guide the conversation, but to really feel what is emergent, to feel that we are tapping in with one another uh, around this theme of activism and, uh, and cop and uh, re-evolution. Is there anything emergent, anything somebody would like to bring to the floor, to the space, something that you feel uh, that can be spun into a pearl, some irritant that can get us moving in a new direction. And I'd like to take these last 15 minutes to actually try this cosmic navigation. Actually in the room with us is also Mark Smith, who's a friend who introduced me to the concept of backcasting, which is kind of dreaming audaciously and what you call the up game, which is to really uh, cast our minds into the future and try to weave back and make sense of everything that's happening now through the eyes or through a portal where everything worked out. We've had people say that this was uh, very similar to Doctor Strange in one of the Marvel movies, saying that there's all these hundreds of thousands or millions or infinite scenarios where it failed except one, and that it is key for us to really visualize that scenario. So perhaps we can actually get the people in the room with us to engage in a little bit of playful backcasting from 2030. Is anybody up for it? If we keep it brief, if we keep the backcasting to down to two, three minutes for each and every one of us, we might actually have a beautiful, interesting conversation from the future. And I don't know who wants to go first. Well, since you brought it up, I'm gonna jump right in there, Jurgis, of course. We're here beamcasting, beaming, that backcasting evolutionary alliance mediums. We're here to share what it is that we did along the way to get to a future we know our hearts is possible, that more beautiful future that we all know we carry. That's the ideal that's been carried forth that we're wandering the path that we're on, this perpetual emotion machinations that we engage in to carry forth this little flame, this chispa of life that we know is central to our foundation. That's the story we tell here. What did you do along the way to arrive at that future that you know is possible? All right, That's give me a question. second. Give me a second. Let me guide it. Let me guide it. Let me guide it. Let, let me start it off. Let me start it off. Let me let me let me pass the ball on to Tia. Let, let's see if this works. Let me say, Tia, do you remember? Do you remember when we were at COP26, and there was this whole discussion of good COP, bad COP. There was clearly a divide between the people who felt disenfranchised and the people who couldn't be asked to budge. But remember what happened afterwards. Do you remember how nobody expected it? Nobody thought it was possible. But at the end of that conference, something magical happened that, that kind of put everything into perspective. Do you remember that? Oh God, and how I do remember that. Do you remember that time when I was, um, you know, just navigating these conversations about these frontiers that we were about to reach like membranes and these sort of porous edges that we were trying to figure out and mentally understand but actually it was much more about as 
Sylvia Earle had described in one of her talks that when I was 19, we didn't have what you had. And of course, you know, back then we had no idea about the capability that we could potentially even have. So yes, I do remember that. And I do remember what we were able to achieve too, an earth replenished. It's absolutely beautiful. I mean, back then we didn't even think that telepathy would be possible. It, it was a couple of years till we actually caught on that it was just consciousness trying to come awake and we were just struggling like, like, like a teenager goes to growing pains. Amanda, do you recall that? Amanda, does you recall? Or maybe she's still thinking. Laura, do you remember that? Do you remember? I do remember. I do remember when we realized that we needed to cut down on our CO2 emissions by and sequester 10 gigatons of CO2 per year. Um, and we've already made it down like most of the way with this amazing emerging technology. And, you know, I'm, I'm so relieved that governments changed their subsidies. Uh, what is it? $6 trillion of subsidies to the fossil fuel companies. And they've rerouted those to these emerging technologies that are kind of supporting earth-based solutions and accelerating nature's genius. And I'm, I'm, I'm so grateful that we've been able to come that far in these, you know, nine years. It's, it's, it's astounding. And also in the, in the field of business, you know, and how, how these new emergent kind of uh, structures, you know, remember Lucien back in uh, 2021, we were talking and he was mentioning the whole problem between nonprofits and profit organizations. It's amazing how that like resolved itself. And now we think of profits and nonprofits and it feels like we're talking about this, the stone age and, you know, helping people by, by bleeding them. <laughs> I think I remember that 2023 was the year that Benjamin won the Nobel Prize for his work on really, you know, really like, like helping people get weaned off plastic and really, right? Was it 23 or 24, Benjamin, remember? <laughs> uh, it makes me so uncomfortable to claim any kind of credit like that. <laughs> but thank you. The Mushrooms. The mushrooms really played the protagonist role in this decade. They were recognized as really the uh, a supra kingdom above animals or plants connecting us all and their ability to myco-remediate, to remediate all of the toxins that late-stage capitalism had infused into most cells around the earth. Uh, mushrooms took them back, reclaimed them, and turned them back into biology and bioavailable nutrients so that we could breathe again, so that the rains didn't have plastic in them anymore. Uh, the mushrooms won many, many prizes. For me, for me, the beautiful thing about this activity is that it allows us to dream audaciously. And for me, for some reason, COP feels a little bit like a nightmare. There's so much dissonance. There's so much kind of like, I don't know, something feels stale, something feels off. And I'm not disagreeing with, with Dia in the sense that, yes, there are institutional 
shifts that are occurring which are positive. But um, I find dreaming audaciously much more inspirational than than getting um, caught up in the in the how. And um, and if we're talking about again activism and revolution, um, I'd like to just kind of ask in the last five minutes what it is that can help us dream a little bit more audaciously and how we can bring audacious dreaming and visioning to these kinds of spaces. I love the Ready Player One movie and the best quote in the movie for me was, reality is limited by your imagination. With audaciousness, just as much as George Land created a study of geniuses and how imagination was a a superpower in order for JFK to reach the the deadline within 10 years to arrive at the moon. They introduced imagination as the opportunity of hiring an incredible team of people that believed that it could happen. I think that's where we are right now. Imagination as a superpower. We should hand it out as drugs to everybody, I think, here. That's beautiful. I love that. Who else has got a bite-sized piece of information before we're off the air? Or vision? Nobody? 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 Come on, let it rip. I think bringing it back to the indigenous people really seen as as the leaders of this movement uh, and brought into the economy and it's hard for me to even imagine what that looks like because I want to just defer to them. Um, but recognizing that they steward 80% of the biodiversity currently on the planet on 5% of the land and yeah, imagining what that could be if we gave them more power. I think that's such a lovely thought. I'm still kind of, um, I'm still under the hypnosis under the spell of this idea that there are people whispering to water in the Amazon and whispering consciousness. And yesterday when I was at the indigenous event here in, uh, in Glasgow, I kind of felt that I wanted somebody to whisper to water and to take like water guns and spray people with this structured water with positive beaming light. And it's funny, it's funny because if you believe in the medicine of consciousness, of really elevating somebody's consciousness, like I am, maybe just by playing a couple of chords or saying something nice to somebody else, you bring the heart dimension in. That's what these people have been working on. And I at least am a bit happy to see that each time their voices are more and more heard, each time their ideas are more and more represented, and each time we recognize them more as elders and an integral part of rebuilding our civilization. Ladies and gentlemen, this was Reinco Radio. With you, we had Amanda Joy Ravenhill, we had Benjamin Von Wong, we had Lucien Tarnowski, Tia Kansada, Leah Wasserson as well. We bid you a very beautiful morning, afternoon, and uh, we wish you dream a little bit more audaciously and envision with compassion so that other people can enjoy those visions of yours and, um, and be infected by them. Super, we're off the air.